Good morning. I thought I'd be back a little bit so I wasn't standing right in front of Colum. So we're, this, this fall we are uh, looking at the Beatitudes of Jesus, and some of you are familiar with those, and maybe some of you have not heard of those, but they are sayings that, of Jesus, and there's two collection of Beatitudes, one in the Gospel of Luke and one in the Gospel of Matthew. And they're called Beatitudes because of the formula of the sayings. Each of them begin with a blessing. For example, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or as we'll look today, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. These blessings that Jesus give mark a path. They mark a way of being, a way for us to walk with him. And as part of that, it's a chance for us to examine our identity, our our hearts, our lives, to look at who we are and what we think is the way of life. And we often learn by contrast, we often examine ourselves best by contrast, and so this fall is looking at the Beatitudes, we'll do that one by one, and we'll compare each Beatitude with one of the traditional vices. The list of vices are pride, envy, vainglory, sloth, greed, lust, wrath, and gluttony. Last week we looked at the contrast between poor in spirit and pride. This morning we're going to look at the contrast between mourning and envy. Mourning and envy. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This blessing is in contrast to those who envy. In this case, envy being mourning over the blessings of another. Mourning over the good gifts of another. Envy and the other vices, they summarize a way of being in the world, a way centered around ourselves, around what we can see and what we can grasp. And in contrast, Jesus sets forth a different way, a way rooted in himself, a way expressed most clearly and fully in him. And part of his blessings for us this morning is to examine and to think, what is the way of life truly? What way do we believe is the true life and the way of true joy? So we're going to look at our passage, we're going to look at Matthew 5 and read this blessing about mourning, but also we'll look at a passage from 2 Corinthians. The passage in Matthew will introduce the Beatitude, and then we'll spend time in 2 Corinthians reflecting on what this means that Jesus has given us. So I encourage you to follow along in your order of worship, or in your Bible, or you can listen as I read. So first, Matthew 5, 2 through 4, and Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted. And in 2 Corinthians 1 1 through 11, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is in Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation, and if we are comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. 
Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessed granted us through the prayers of many. This is God's word given for our good. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, and we thank you that you have gathered us here. We pray by your spirit that you would open our hearts to receive and to hear from you. And we pray that you would do the work that only you can do, that you would not only help us to hear, but that you would move us to faith, that we'd find rest and hope in you, Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the sermon will have two parts this morning. The first, I want to look at the Matthew passage as a way to introduce kind of the question or the experience of mourning. What is Jesus talking about? And then second, we will look at the Second Corinthians passage to talk about the promise of comfort. So first, let's see this passage from Matthew and Jesus talking about mourning. It, Matthew opens by saying, Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And in this blessing, Jesus gives us a chance to consider that there are more than one type of mourning in this world, one type of mourning in our own hearts. And this morning, what I want us to think about, I'll call one expression of mourning sorrow. There's sorrow, and then there's envy. These two different types of mourning are different natures, and they have different hopes, different goals. Sorrow is the feeling of deep distress brought on by significant loss or difficulty, suffered either by our myself or by those in my life, we know that experience of sorrow. And sorrow longs for comfort. Sorrow longs for comfort. In this world, you will have trouble. Jesus says this to us. Jesus in his own life knows that this world is filled with sorrow, and therefore our lives will be marked by sorrow. Therefore, it's important to say, maybe we don't need to say this, but it's important to acknowledge it, that the Christian, the, the Christian life is not one who's able to handle anything that comes his or her way. The Christian is not one who is unaffected by life or nothing really affects me. But rather here, Jesus even invites the reality that being a follower of hers, his includes the experience of sorrow, of mourning, of experiencing his blessing in the midst of it. And as we think about mourning as sorrow, we can think of a few words that help kind of give shape to that experience. We can think of the word goodbye. We mourn leaving a place, leaving a period, saying goodbye to someone that we care about. We can think of the word failure. We mourn our struggles in school or in work, our struggles in relationships and in marriage and friendships. We sorrow over a missed opportunity, getting passed over, regretting foolish choices. We can think of the past. We think of sorrow, we think of the past. We mourn and struggle in the present due to past trauma, past difficulties, past abuse or mistreatment, past words or events that obscure and affect us today in the present. 
And we can think of the word never. When we mourn the loss of those that we love. Nicholas Wolterstorff, an author, when writing about the death of his adult son, says, never again to be here with us, never to sit with us at the table, never to travel with us, never to laugh with us, never to cry with us, never to embrace us. All the rest of our lives we must live without him. And sorrow knows that never, never in the relationships that we care about. Opening ourselves, connecting ourselves to others brings about loss and hurt. And we suffer in our bodies, we suffer in our hearts and in our minds, and sometimes we show this sorrow to those around us, and sometimes it remains hidden within. In Jesus' language, his blessing invites you and I in honesty to recognize those marks and that experience within us. But his language marks not just sorrow, but another type of mourning as well, and call envy. Envy is different than sorrow. Sorrow is blessed because it is a hollowing out of us, a place for God within us. Sorrow is blessed because it affirms an emptiness before God. But envy is different. Envy is not marked by an emptiness, but rather a grabbing, a holding, a demanding. It closes us, for envy is a mourning or a sadness over the blessings of others. Envy is the path of resenting another's good, bitterness over what another person has. Maybe you've seen the Bernstein Bears books. Have you ever seen those? My kids had some of those growing up. Bernstein Bears, there was a family of bears living in a hollowed-out tree. It was kind of a magical thing. The tree seemed kind of small, but they had many rooms that they were living in. But there was Mama Bear and Papa Bear, brother and sister bear, and the youngest, if you have those books, of Honey Bear, they, they tackle some tough issues, the Berenstein Bears, seriously. In one of the books, <laughs> the Berenstein Bears and the Green-Eyed Monster is all about the sister bear getting envious of her brother bear's bike. He gets a bike for his birthday, and she wants that bike for herself. It's not that she just wants a bike, but she wants that one. And in the book, she has a dream where a literal green-eyed monster a little dark, you know, for a children's book, but a green-eyed monster talks her into taking and riding his bike, taking and riding her brother's bike. Well, the bike ends up getting broken, and a lesson is learned. But I mention that story because envy, we might think of it as similar to greed or being covetous or jealous, but the thing about envy, as the church has explored it in the past, it's not just a desire to have, but it's to have the very thing the other person has. Why should that one get such a nice bike? Why should he get that bike? I want it. I want that one. I want that experience. I want that good thing. I want that blessing in my life. Envy can show itself in all sorts of ways. Feeling offended at the talents or successes of others. Having a feeling of unnecessary competition with another person having pleasure over someone else's difficulties, reading false motives into the other person, belittling them or saying something bad behind their back, often maybe just joking in the midst of it. And that joking or that competition, that criticalness, it starts with a murmur in our hearts, but over time, if it grows, it turns into a hatred. 
a criticalness, an open competition and dislike for another. Sorrow and envy have different natures and they have different goals. Sorrow longs for comfort. It longs for one to care in the midst of the loss. But envy concludes something different. Envy concludes that happiness will come when I have what the other person has, when I am above them or when I get a hold of that experience. This perspective, this logic can work itself out in a couple of different ways. One, I can climb above the other person. I can take hold of what they have or it can work itself out by wanting that person to sink down with me. I want them to feel whatever pain I feel. I want them to feel my emptiness and my lack. As one ancient author said, as a moth gnaws at a garment, so does envy consumes a man. Envy consumes a man. So the envy and its logic always leads to one being alone. And if there's any sense of peace that's arrived, it is a fragile and a temporary peace. The logic of God's kingdom is different. And Jesus offering a blessing to those who mourn, he is saying to you and to me in the midst of this world that speaks all sorts of crazy things about sorrow and how to move out of it, Jesus says a way of blessing on those who mourn. For it is a blessing when we see and know the world's suffering It is a blessing when we even feel our own emptiness. It is a blessing when we see the depth of our own sin. For in that place, in those places, we have a chance to meet Jesus, the one who binds up the brokenhearted. And therefore Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. For he is the one who's come to bear our sorrows. When the Matthew Beatitude of blessing of those who mourn, we are invited to think about what our experience of mourning is, about whether it is over our sorrows or whether it's envious towards others. And I want to spend the rest of our time looking at this passage from 2 Corinthians that speak about the promise of comfort. The promise of comfort. 2 Corinthians opens like Paul's other letters, you might have noticed, where there is an introduction and an opening thanksgiving and prayer. But in these opening verses, you you might have caught on, just in a handful of verses, Paul uses the word comfort ten times. Ten times he references comfort. This is what is on his mind. This is his experience and what his co-workers experience and what he hopes that the church in Corinthians will experience as well in the midst of their suffering. And so we need to ask, why is this so much on Paul's mind? What, What had happened to Paul? And we don't know all the details, but we know that he has emerged out of Asia, out of modern-day Turkey, battered and bruised. He was imprisoned. He was mistreated at Ephesus. He faced physical beating, imprisonment, and rejection that he has been declared that you and your message are a threat to our city. I don't know about how you think about Paul. Maybe for some of us, Paul is this person who never struggles. Paul, who has easy to handle all things, easy to handle the challenges that come his way. And certainly God used Paul to to give us God's word, but Paul is a human being like you and like me. And we see what he writes here, that through his mistreatment and time in prison, Paul came to the point of not only being fearful of his death, but his own spirits reaching a low ebb, this, this feeling of sorrow and of fear and anxiety deep within him. One author writes that Paul writes as one overwhelmed 
experiencing a breakdown, a load being too heavy, coming to that point where maybe you can relate to a personal resources are not sufficient to handle what's in front of him. In this letter in 2 Corinthians, his deep sorrow, his raw wounds are apparent. And he writes as one emerging from the ruins of his own house, hoping to offer comfort to those, that, the comfort he's experienced. And that longing for comfort, that experience of his suffering leads Paul to give God a name here. Did you see how he refers to God? God is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. The God of all comfort. The Greek term here translated comfort literally means to call to one side. To call and draw, draw near to another. Interesting, the scriptures, both Jewish and Christian scriptures, use this term for comfort, but the term, this Greek term, was normally used in the broader culture, not for comfort, but to exhort somebody, to urge them. In the broader culture, this term was to call one over in order to tell them to get going again, get started again. Not comfort, for grief in the Greco-Roman world was treated with contempt, not only for comfort, but an exhortation to get going again and return to your responsibilities Return to your duties. Get back in there. You can do it. But Paul, following the Old Testament tradition, uses this term in a very different manner. The image of God being one who calls us over to himself. God calling us over to his side. The image of one person being brought to another, speaking words of comfort, words that would change the mood or situation Words that give courage, words that give new hope and new direction, new insights, ready to face the next moment or the next day. God is the God of all comfort because He meets us where we are and brings a new vision, a new word to us to bring strength to us, new possibilities. God is the one who draws near to speak and to act with comfort for His people and their affliction. And that comfort, that expression of God, drawing us close, holding us near, that is expressed in the person of Jesus, Paul says. Paul says, remember his sufferings and remember Christ's resurrection, his comfort that is in his sufferings and his resurrection that we can know the comforts of God. And I want us to think about those two things that how God has comforted us in Christ. The first being that he comforts us with words. If we look to Jesus as our comfort, we see that God has comforted us with words. That Jesus is a witness, a message to us. The gospel proclamation offers us words. That Jesus acknowledges our sorrow, our wounds, our losses. But also gives witness that there is something greater than the one who has hurt us. Greater than what we've experienced greater than our failures or our sin, greater than even death. You see, God has drawn us over close to us in Christ and given us a witness, a word to hold on to. That it affirms, it affirms and acknowledges the suffering that you and I experience, but says that there is something more. The resurrection says that there is more that the goodbyes, that the failure, the past, that even death will not be the final word in your life or in our brothers' and sisters' lives. 
Think about experiences of comfort that you might have had or offered to another. Words are a critical part of comfort. Words from the one that love us. Words that acknowledge our sorrows and where we are. But words that speak beyond our sorrows as well. Jesus was subject to the brokenness and to the pain of this world, to the realities of his day. He was rejected and made to suffer and crucified by the Roman powers around him. He entered into history and was made subject to it, but this is not the whole account. What Paul is remembering and trying to remind the church in Corinth and you and me is that remember God's message to us in Christ, that God of all comfort took on flesh. The eternal word was deemed a fool and killed, but this eternal word was raised to new life and now is proclaimed. And in this proclamation, do you see that the resurrection speaks hope by not negating our experience. The glorified body of Jesus is marked by scars, by human limitation and experience. It's in his resurrected body that Jesus still bears the marks of humanity. But yet he is a sacred witness to you and to me, a sacred witness that there is something more than our sorrow, more than our scars. And Jesus speaks these words to you and to me to comfort us. Well, Paul points to comfort in God's words, but he also points to the comfort of God's body. In Christ, we're given God's words and we're given God's body as our comfort. At the heart of Paul's prayer, the heart of the gospel promise is that what's true of Jesus is true of his people that we share in Christ. The gospel sets a pattern of exchange Christ died so his people died in him, sharing in his sufferings. Christ rose again so his people rise again in him, knowing the power of the resurrection and the comfort of the promise, in part now and fully one day when Christ comes again. In this exchange, we're invited to see our union. It's not just that God gives us words, but puts himself with us, united in Christ's body. I am not a good gardener. I'm not good at growing things. The other day, our street flooded because of all the rains. Maybe you had that experience. And my little, little garden bed I'd made got flooded over. And my children made fun of me, though, by saying, oh, how sad it is that all my weeds, all my weeds and lack of flowers are actually covered with water. So I do not know much about planting and growing things. But I do know the concept of engrafting probably because it's a concept that the Scripture uses as well. Engrafting is the term of the world of plants. A weaker plant is grafted to a stronger one. At the point of cuts, at the point of incision, two plants are bound together, connected. And the weaker plant draws life and energy from the stronger one, and over time, the two become one. John Calvin uses that image to speak of Christ's union with you that we've been engrafted in the Christ and God's comfort to us is not just a witness, a proclamation, but his body. That the wounds upon us and the wounds upon Christ are the place in which we are connected. The scars that he bears are scars in which he has entered into your sorrow and mine. Saying that I don't carry them alone, but that he is carrying them 
with us. Interesting, this exchange, this pattern is not just for Jesus. It's not just for Jesus and his people. But Paul says it's something that we can experience together. That in love, God moved towards us in our hurt and pain in Christ. And now in love, he calls us to share that comfort with one another, with our words and our lives, to proclaim and be witness that there is something greater than our sorrow, to offer our lives as a way to acknowledge the sorrow amongst us, but also to speak words of comfort and a presence of comfort. This is very different than the path of envy. Sorrow and comfort, the blessings of Christ, lead to connection with one another, the possibility of sharing connection with each other and comfort. But envy always leads the opposite way. For Scripture tells us to rejoice with those who are rejoicing, but to weep with those who weep in envy, mourning over the blessings of others, flip that around. Where we weep when others rejoice, and we rejoice when they weep. Leaving us alone. Leaving us always fighting for another place or another thing. In New York City, St. Patrick's Cathedral is across the street from Rockefeller Center. And in this interesting connection of them being across from each other, there are two statues that are well known that are right across the street from each other. On one side of the street in Rockefeller Center, there is the statue of Atlas. Maybe you've seen it. Atlas is this mythological figure who attempted to overthrow the gods of Mount Olympus. He was going to overthrow Zeus and all the other gods. And so he was condemned in his pride and hubris to have to carry the celestial spear on his shoulder for all eternity, by himself holding up the world. And across the street in St. Patrick's Cathedral, there is another statue, one that's very different, a statue of the Pieta, which means pity. Maybe you've seen it. It is a statue, an image of the crucified Jesus, dead, laying across the lap of his mother Mary. Here is not one holding up the world in his hubris and pride, but rather one in God's will who has faced our sin and sorrow and death. The world encourages us to take hold of things for ourselves, to walk in envy even, to take hold of the blessings that we want. We see that picture in Atlas, literally carrying the world on his own shoulders by himself. Jesus offers us a different path, a different image, and our emptiness to turn and see Jesus, the one laying across his mother's lap, broken, the God in flesh, that God and humanity may share their tears and share their sorrow with one another. Nicholas Wolterstorff, who I mentioned earlier, has a quote that I'll wrap up with. He asks, How is faith to endure, O God, when you allow all this scraping and tearing on us? There's rivers of blood to flow, mountains of suffering piling up sobs. It has become humanity's song. If you have not abandoned us, then explain yourself. And he writes, We strain to hear, but instead of hearing an answer, we catch sight of God himself, scraped and torn. Through our tears, we see the tears of God and the brokenness of Christ. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted with the promise of Christ for us. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you bring us to yourself in honesty and sorrow that we may be lifted up. 
not by our strength or what we promise to do, but by your grace to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.